It's one thing to be prepared. It's another to be so bound to your plans and phone apps that you miss out on what's all around you when you're on a vacation. Usually when I'm traveling and I'm surprised, it's positive. Once in a while, it's negative, and I'm willing to pay that price. Coming up, travel writer Seth Kugel recommends how to get yourself into a globally curious travel mode and off your phone. If you're posting to any of the social media apps while you are somewhere, then you're taking yourself out of the moment. The intense popularity of Amsterdam is threatening to overwhelm the city's vibe as a tolerant and easygoing destination. A local guide tells us how Amsterdam's reliance on tourism is starting to affect the people who live there. The locals cannot buy the groceries that they need. They can't survive on cheese and chocolate. And we'll help you plan a memorable family getaway in the hour ahead. Let's get ready to explore the world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The line to get into the Anne Frank Museum stretches around the block all day long. The increasing popularity of Amsterdam as a tourist destination is putting a real strain on the people who live there, too. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we hear how Amsterdam is coping with its tourist boom and share ideas on how you can be a respectful tourist, even at some of its less-than-family-friendly attractions. We'll also check in with listeners planning family travels to Europe to ensure everybody enjoys a memorable vacation. Let's start the hour with tips on the best ways to be a globally curious traveler with frequent traveler Seth Kugel. Technology for travel is undeniably helpful, but over-reliance on technology and the Internet can also be a hurdle between you and a rich travel experience. Seth Kugel has written about this topic in his new book, Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious, and he joins us now for some advice on how we can switch it over to what he calls travel mode when necessary. Seth, of course, there's great uses for technology in our travels. Nobody would deny that. But technology can get in the way, and I think that's what you addressed in your notion of the travel mode. What is the travel mode? Well, think of airplane mode on your smartphone. When you get on a plane, you put on airplane mode, and there's a bunch of stuff. It just doesn't work. And basically, I was fantasizing about, well, because I'm on a trip, and I have my smartphone, and now my smartphone works in every country in the world. It used to be great. You used to not be able to use your, your smartphone in some countries. But now it works everywhere. So I would always be like, no, I can't use it. I'm not going to open TripAdvisor. I'm not going to open Google Maps. I'm going to get through this day without it. I'm not going to post to Facebook when I'm, you know, at the pyramids at Giza or anything like that. So I had this, like, sort of this fantasy that my phone would tell me what I could do and what I couldn't do. So I invented this sort of fantasy app called Travel Mode. You flip it on, and the main sort of idea of it is it restricts how often you use certain elements of your phone but allows you to use the other ones that really help travel. Okay, so let's go through these just because we're all going to construct this app in our minds, thanks to Seth Kugel. What about texting and messaging apps? Right. Well, I think that people love to be connected with their family in case an emergency happens, and I'm not against that. So what I've done here is I've said you can choose a few people and allow their messages to come through, but the rest of the folks, you're dependent on that one hour a day, what I call connection time, where, you know, you're in your hotel, you know, you turn off travel mode, and there, you get to answer all the texts okay, you got that Okay, so day. we're not going nothing's... cold turkey here. We're going to give ourselves one hour a night to be wrapped up in all of our social stuff. 
in my fantasy, I actually uh, would have it be a, a GPS-based thing, and you can only use these things when you're inside your hotel room. You're not allowed to use them outside. So that's a bit of a, that's even more of a fantasy. I like, but it's fantasy, so that's okay. Now, you, you mentioned when it comes to email, limit your email responses to about the amount of time it would take to write a, the weather's here, wish you were a beautiful message on a postcard in the old days, two minutes max for composing each message. Well, email is really these days kind of a, a work app in a way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have to answer the question, you get two minutes to answer it. That's it. And, of course, it has to be during that one hour of connection. During that one hour in the evening when you're not in overseas, when you're really back at home in your normal... There's just no such thing these days as an emergency email. If someone needs to get in touch with you during mm -hmm. the day, they can text you or call you. Yeah. Now, social media is the big deal. It just, we seem to have a deeply ingrained need to show off on social media when we're traveling. But how does this impact the experience and what should we do about it? Well, it's a huge debate in travel, but I, I can't help but think that if you're posting to uh, any of the social media apps while you are somewhere, then you're taking yourself out of the moment. Now, I do understand the need, the sort of human desire to show off where you are or, or at least inform your friends of what you're doing or to be clever. So what Travel Mode does is it still allows you to take the pictures, to take the videos. Mm -hmm. You just can't post them until you get back to your <laughs> hotel room. And you're certainly not allowed to see how many people liked it and who commented on it. Oh, that yeah. that oh. just doesn't make any sense to do that when you're on vacation. And and these software companies are so good at, at, at stroking your serotonin needs by showing you the little hearts and the little sparkles as people love what I'm, you do. It seems very unnatural to take a picture that would be great on Instagram and then wait until nighttime to post it. But in reality, you might be in, even be in a time zone where everyone you know is asleep anyway. Right. So it's clearly, to me, it would make my trip so much better if I were forbidden from posting on social media until nighttime. Okay, so we got permission not to be reporting live. But why do you need to interrupt being in the moment? Get the luxury of reporting later and, and working within Seth's uh, travel mode hour when you can be connected. What about relationship apps? This is a very interesting point that you brought up. I never even thought about it, but there's a lot of relationship apps that can actually be a plus in your travels, but under certain constraints. Well, I've been amazed in speaking to people a bit younger than me and a bit singler than me uh, who use stuff like Tinder on vacation as a way of meeting people, usually romantically, but, but not always. And I just think it's a great way to meet people in the place you are. I completely forbid you from swiping people in your hometown while you're on vacation. That is completely unnecessary. That does not make any sense at all. Now, it's funny you say that because I was just having a, a barbecue dinner with a vagabond friend of mine. He's a free-spirited guy that basically is on the road almost all the time, and he's alone. And I, I was marveling at how he enjoys himself so much alone, and, and he just constantly uses these relationship apps as he travels and not necessarily for romantic hookups, but just, hey, I'm coming into town, and if anyone wants to get together, and it's a huge bonus for his solo globetrotting to use the relationship apps. Especially if you're the kind of person that has a lot of trouble, you know, smiling and asking a question of a stranger. Right. Uh, it's a way, it's an easy way to meet people, and it's become a very normal way to do it. Seth Kugel has been specializing in how to see the world on a budget ever since his days as the frugal traveler at the New York Times. His book is Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. And he hosts YouTube videos on the Globally Curious channel. You know, in, in your book, Seth, you talk about how travel is much about your ears as it is about your eyes and your taste buds. Uh, 
Music can be a part of our travels if we use our apps smartly, and it doesn't need to get between us and the local culture. Right. In fact, I think uh, one of the things travel mode allegedly does is it stops you from listening at least too much to the music you always listen to, and it senses whether you're listening to music from the place where you are. And it also has completely unlimited listening to local radio. Uh, local radio is something we never even think about anymore with great podcasts like like yours. But when you're in a place, I remember driving through uh, South Dakota and turning on and hearing a sort of a Native American station talking about political issues on the reservation. And I, I was like, well, if I turn, I would, this is amazing. And I would never have even heard this if I were just listening to my normal podcast. You know, that's a beautiful idea. And I've, of course, when we're in an English-speaking country like the, well, the British Isles, it's obvious. And, and you get that local personality, that character. You even listen to local advertisements. And it's all entertaining and adds to your understanding of that culture. When you're traveling across southern Spain, Suncoast Radio, it's for the expats. It's in English. And you hear that all along the Costa del Sol. On a related note, a lot of us are news junkies. When I was in India last time, I made a personal sort of uh, directive that I'm not going to be focused on American news. I'm going to get caught up in Indian news. And I just read the local press, and I got all interested and tuned into what was going on in India. Uh, Of course, the press is in English there, and the India Times was a great magazine to read, and I thought it added a lot to my travels. Oh, my God, I've got to add that into the second edition of the book. I'm noting it right here. (laughs) That really helps. Also, Seth, you talk about maps and uh, GPS apps. What's your thoughts on on how these can uh, help you, but how they can also fail you and prevent you from connecting with the locals? I find this one the absolute hardest one, and it really depends on the situation. Uh, When you're driving and you don't want to get lost and you're in a strange place, you know, using a GPS like Google Maps or one of the other ones, I think is perfectly fine. But when you're walking across Paris, the last thing you want to be doing is looking down at your phone uh, and seeing which direction to go. I had an experience a number of years ago in Santiago, Chile, where I, you know, Google Maps wasn't really working. It had sort of just started there. And I bought a big, fat map, you know, like it spread. I spread out in front of me. And I was just so amazed at how quickly I became oriented to the city. I figured out what was where just by looking at this big map, whereas if I'd been looking at Google Maps on an app, I would have just been like, okay, now i got to take a turn right, now i got to turn left. You so, nailed um, it. You nailed it. That's been my big frustration lately because I'm over there in Europe running around doing my research or making TV shows with people from a generation younger than me, and they just look at the, I'm going straight, and then I turn, and they've got no sense of the big picture, the lay of the land. And this is actually a neurological thing. You, your brain builds a map of where you are. Well, yeah. not if you're using Google Maps. We lose the lay of the land, and that dents your understanding of Paris. You don't know if you're on the left bank or the right bank or on an island if you're just looking at, I turn left, and then in 100 yards, I turn right. When you listen to your directives at the ter- take the third exit on the next roundabout, you forget to look at the city names. I mean, I'm just going to Cardiff. I don't need to know which exit on the roundabout do I take. I'm just going to Cardiff. Follow the signs to Cardiff. There's two um, mentalities of navigation, one buried in GPS and the other is old-fashioned, lay of the land. Well, and that includes asking people for directions, which is, of course, a great way to meet people. You got it. And then, and the last point, Seth, is is apps that rate restaurants. I was just in uh, Yucatan, and every night we let my daughter be the tour guide, and she had her Yelp or Urban Spoon or whatever she was, travel advisor or some trip advisor, and she was she knew which restaurants were really going to be great. But 
I kind of thought we lost a little bit, not just by wandering around and seeing what looked good to us. Well, people have very different attitudes about using online user reviews, so I won't get into that. But I personally like to look around, peer in the windows of restaurants, see which ones are full, see which ones look good, get inside the restaurant, look around at other people's tables and see what they've ordered, ask them what they've ordered. A lot of times they actually give you a taste depending on what country you're in. Hmm. And, uh, and to be surprised, I don't want to read 10 descriptions of a dish I'm about to eat any more than I want to read the script of a, of a movie before I go to the cinema. I want to be surprised. I want to discover that I like it or maybe that I hate it. So you're in the moment. You're not, you're not comparing it to somebody else's experience. You're having the discover- experience on your own it's terms. A, it's a little mini discovery. I love being surprised. Usually when I'm traveling and I'm surprised, it's positive. Once in a while, it's negative, And I'm willing to pay that price. And that's the subtitle of your book, A Guide for the Globally Curious. Thank you, Seth, for sharing a a very important insight into something that really deserves a little more thought. Thanks, Rick. Seth Kugel's website is sethkugel.com. That's spelled K-U-G-E-L. Up next, we look at how Amsterdam copes with its popularity among tourists and will help with family travel plans for Europe. We're at 877-333-RICK. Or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. It's travel with Rick Steves. While the city's population is less than a million, 20 million more are coming to visit, and they put a visible strain on Amsterdam every year. They range from family groups to budget backpackers to stag party revelers. Amsterdam has been a magnet for the world and the worldly ever since its 17th century golden age. Local tour guide Ellen Janze joins us now to examine the impact the crowds are having on Amsterdam. Thanks for being here, Ellen. Thanks for having me, Rick. What's it like in Amsterdam right now? It's a brilliant city. It's a vibrant city. It's a very popular city. It's um, a tolerant city. And this is attracting very many people and very many tourists. It's not a development that's on its own because you see it all over Europe. Mm -hmm. There are many places struggling with the burden of mass tourism, like Venice, like Dubrovnik, like Barcelona, Mm -hmm. and Amsterdam too. But Amsterdam is different in that it's one of the smaller capitals of Europe. Yeah. It's, It's like comparable to Copenhagen and Dublin and Amsterdam. They're the smallest capitals in Europe. So 800,000 inhabitants... But the burden of tourism has increased exponentially the past decade. When you see in 2010, there were 5 million tourists. Mm -hmm. And last year, 2018, so eight years later, 18 million. 18 million tourists in Amsterdam. Now, you walk down the main street, Damrak. It's a stately street. But now the businesses are there really to cater not to the locals, but to the tourists. Yes. You see uh, Hooters, you see Hard Rock Cafe, you see a sex cheese museum, shops. and you see cheese shops. Right, yeah. Well, do, lo- do the local people just say, well, that's for the tourist, I'll go to another street? Well, that's the problem. Local shops have to go away, yeah. and so the locals cannot buy the groceries that they need. They can't survive on cheese and chocolate. They have need of a cucumber every now and then. Um, so um, that's a problem. And the city council is trying to influence that by the licenses that they're giving to so shops. So they can shape the uh, yes. what's being sold. The a monoculture. Bit. They can yeah. change the monoculture around. They do no longer license 
those monoculture shops. So little knickknacks for tourists. Yeah. So yeah. they're trying in to the protect problem- it that way. In the problematic areas. What are some other examples of what the, the city council might be doing? I understand there's some concern about uh, the vehicles on the canals, the boats. Yes, they are influencing, uh, trying to curb a recreational traffic on the canals. Because, because you can rent a little paddle boat and that's just And like, have a big party there and go right. drunk and just yep. uh, shout and be noisy and misbehave and uh, whatever. So they're trying to curb that. They're trying to curb the pressure of crowds. They're they're trying crowd management, really, in the red light district, for instance, which is a concentration area, which is very small. Yes, so you got like four or five uh, lanes on the canals that are the, quote, red light district, and where you've got all the red lights of the prostitutes. And uh, a generation ago, this was kind of a no-go zone. It was a sailor's quarter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it had a lot of hard drug problems and a lot of prostitution. Now it's sort of uh, cutesy. It's gentrified yep. and all the tour groups yep. are going yep. there. It's almost like a theme park. Yes. <laughs> Which is horrible to, <laughs> to say. But, uh, you know, in, in the olden days, you had the sailors coming into the port and just heading into the city and, you know, so that was going the to that quarter. quarter. It, it was. Like. Yeah. It was. And, of and course, then, you had the, the prostitutes there. Yeah, yeah. And now you have the cruise liners uh, mooring in the port and all... Those tourists from the cruise liners. And everybody's making a beeline there. for the RLD, the red light yes, district. Yes, yes. And it's a very small area where, which is very confined. So let's think Americans are kind of going, what? A red light district? We can't. But in, in, in Europe, there's a pragmatic harm reduction approach to uh, some of these challenges that a society has. There's going to be prostitution. And in the Netherlands, you want to take the crime out of the equation, uh, try to let uh, sex workers run little businesses. Exactly. Uh, What is the pragmatic approach to prostitution in the Netherlands? Well, it was legalized in 2000, although officially it was brothels that were legalized. Prostitution already was uh, sort of legal individually, but brothels were legalized in 2000 just to try and uh, get a grip on the industry as and, it were. and you don't want streetwalkers. We want people running businesses exactly. in, in places of business. And you want to cut out the crime, uh, the middleman, the criminal. So the, the idea is, if a if a prostitute has a, a a dangerous client and she pushes her emergency button, she's rescued by a policeman she's, rather yep. than a pimp. Yep. Does it really work that way? The agencies that let out the windows mm-hmm. have an obligation to be at the window. Within five minutes. Oh, is that so? You Within rent five you minutes. rent a little window uh, with the red lights and everything, and they've there's a, a little a bedroom in the back and so on. If they've got a problem, the landlord has an obligation to be there. Yes, they've got all these people patrolling the area. Yeah. So actually, you could say that the red light district is the safest area in the city. Well, yeah. you know, the, the Netherlands has this idea of everybody watches everybody else. So you've got, yeah, there's a reality social control. there. Social yes, control. Yes, yes, you know, nothing's there. in the dark. Nothing's hiding. <laughs> yeah. It's all right there in your face. It's all right there in the open. And yeah. the sex workers are unionized. Yep, it's all uh, regulated. So they have... There's an obligation to use condoms. So, and are you checked so you're not spreading diseases before yep. you get your, your license or whatever? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then they're trying to run a business, but what they have is thousands of cruise travelers coming in and just gawking. So yep. this must yep. be a frustration. Well, but it is a frustration because what you get is Amsterdam, like I said, is a tolerant city. It, you have this pragmatic approach, but this tolerance is under threat because of the mass tourism. We have a very uh, non-restrictive, non-authoritative manner of policing. But when all these people come in, you need more restrictions and you need more control. So this is a challenge. So this is really a challenge. How can they preserve the tolerant attitude while keeping 
And excess is under control. And there is a pragmatism. A lot of Americans are into uh, just moralizing and legislating morality, and they would just say, no, there's no prostitution. Well, there's going to be prostitution, whether you like it or not. And in the Netherlands, the idea is, let's take the disease out of it, let's take the crime out of it, let's regulate it, and that's a different way. But it's, it's still complicated. Let's take human trafficking out of it. But it's, very, it's still very complicated to get a grip on it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ellen Janssing. She's a Dutch tour guide, and she's giving us an insight into some of the challenges we have today in the tourism industry, which is thriving in Amsterdam. So, Ellen, if somebody is thinking of visiting the Red Light District, you have to decide when you want to go. Yeah. Uh, yep. what, what would your decision Depends what you, be? Depends what you want to see. Okay, so what are your <laughs> options? What would you say? Uh, what are, you op- are your options? If you want to get an idea of this neighborhood where everything comes together, where people are living, where people do their shopping, where people take their children to daycare, and where you have uh, sex workers behind the windows, um, your best bet would be to go on a morning. Right. In the morning, because in the morning... There's a famous daycare center right there next to the church. Exactly, right there. And then there. there's, the, there's and the windows with the prostitutes. Yes, they, they in are In the morning, the, the moms are taking their little kids to the daycare center, and uh, yep. the girls are setting up shop, and the policeman's yep. walking down the street, yep. and the church bells are ringing. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, all together, all together. <laughs> and this, is, this, this you can get when you go on a morning, but say from lunchtime it gets busier and busier and if you want to get all the sleaze and you want to get all the rowdy people and all the people that are off their face with whatever they've used and yeah. huh, you go on a Friday or a Saturday night. So Friday or Saturday it's going to be yep. thriving yep. sort of what you'd expect yep. maybe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ellen Janssing and we're talking about tourism in Amsterdam. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Anne-Marie has emailed us from Philadelphia, and Anne-Marie writes, What can the United States learn from Amsterdam about marijuana tourism and the economy around it as we just start to dip our toe into this industry? Well, that is interesting because I think it's been 25 years since anybody was arrested for marijuana in the Netherlands, and you've got um, these coffee shops. Right. Now, in the Netherlands, marijuana is not legal, and you haven't figured out the backside, what you call the gray area, so where it's wholesaled and where it's produced, that's kind of like, just don't tell me about that, but it's basically a cottage industry that Mm -hmm. the police don't enforce, but it is sold quasi-legal in these coffee shops. Um, How is that working in the Netherlands right now? It becomes a legal substance as soon as it is in the coffee shop. So it's legal to sell it on the premises of a coffee shop, but it's illegal as soon as it, when it arrives. When it arrives. Yes, so that is a very grey area. But the government is now trying out uh, new legislation to get that side legalized as well. So you know, it's we, interesting because you were ahead of us for a long now time. Now you are ahead of now us. Now we're ahead of you exactly. because we have dealt with what the Dutch called the gray yeah. area. Yeah. How do yeah. you how do you wholesale it? How do you uh, produce it? Yeah. How do you regulate it? Exactly. And you started from scratch we started, and yeah. put up a whole system in place and we just got it together higgledy-piggledy and we ended up with a system which has and gray I, area. I think your system originated because you had a real serious hard drug problem exactly. yeah. in the, in the sailor's strike, heroin. heroin abuse. And the Dutch, 20 years ago, decided, let's take the marijuana out of the equation. That's just a soft drug like alcohol. Yeah. We'll let people sell it in these little pubs, and we'll deal credibly with the heroin problem and the opioid epidemic that you had. And, and it's it been worked. successful. It worked, because when I was growing up, there, were, there was a huge problem with heroin addicts, right. and they just disappeared. And they, today, they that no-go no zone, there. I remember there was a place called 
a needle bridge or something like that, and the police didn't even go there. It was I the know. domain of the junkies. Yes. Today it's got cute little shops and, and uh, hotels yes, yes. and boutiques. No, it's it's just a very open area. And you've yeah. got the coffee shop in the corner where they sell marijuana. Yeah. yeah. And the police, they, they're thankful that the people who want to experiment with soft drugs can do it there, and the police are looking out for the hard drug problem, and they're doing it with some compassion. Yes. yes. And the addicted population is getting smaller and aging. Yes, we yes. The heroin that. addicts that are there are, are very senior citizens by now. So it's interesting. We're all learning from each other at a persistent problem that is not yeah, just going to be yeah. wished away. What I love about the American legalization of soft drugs is that you now also have all these lotions and potions and creams. Yeah. And we well, that's, that. that's part of the trick is to, to, to make it less sexy for the kids. You see, grandma's rubbing it on her elbow now. Yeah. So uh, it's, all, it's all we're learning from yeah. each other. Uh, now, you know, in the Netherlands, we're talking about the crowds, and you've got all of these crowds coming in to see. They kind of gawk at the sex trade, at, at the coffee shops and so on. But there's also a lot of tourists just coming in to see the great sights. In Amsterdam, you've got the Rijksmuseum, you've got the Van Gogh Museum, and, Frank, the line is around the block all day long. What's your advice, Ellen, for travelers coming into the Netherlands, coming into Amsterdam, and enjoying these sites, realizing that, hey, there's tens of millions of people from countries that now have a huge middle class, India and China and so on, that are coming to the Netherlands and they all want to see Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. There's physically not enough hours in the day and not enough square feet in that house to fit everybody. What do we do? True. Plan your trip. That's the only good advice that I can give because all the tickets for the Anne Frank house, for instance, but Mm -hmm. also for the museums, are available online and you get a slot awarded. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to queue. You have your ticket for that slot. You can stay on as long as you want, but it's just the time that you need to enter. Okay, um, so Van Gogh, Rijks, and Frank, all of these you can book online. All online available. And if you just stumble up to the door the same day, it's your problem. You will have to queue and for a long time. a long time. You'll yep. spend several yep. hours of your day yep. waiting yep. to get in. And I think the Anne Frank house has now very limited uh, selling at the door. Mm-hmm. So most of their tickets are sold um, are You know, sold online. my philosophy in, in my guidebooks is don't even tell people how you can get tickets at the door. No. You know, make no. It's tough love. Get it online yeah. and you won't be yeah. frustrated. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Dutch tour guide Ellen Janzing is helping us to be respectful tourists in the increasingly popular city of Amsterdam. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Eric is calling from Colorado Springs. Eric, thanks for your call. Thank you. Am am I on? You are so on. You can't (laughs) believe it. Oh, excellent. So I am a uh, high school teacher and high school counselor, and I, um, with a larger group, I am bringing uh, 12 high school students to Amsterdam, and I just wanted to get a few uh, tips from you on... We want to experience the culture, but I'm not sure I want them to experience the entirety of the culture. <laughs> right. And then also any must-see, we're, we're in Amsterdam uh, four and a half, five days. Hmm. So any tips for traveling with students and then any tips for you must see this? Wow. Eric, I mean, for you to be a teacher, bringing a group of high school kids to Amsterdam for five days, you are one courageous teacher. <laughs> it, it, it's part of a northern France and a little bit more of a trip, but um, Amsterdam is a big part, and I've never been before. So. It, it's, it's an amazing experience for kids, and I really find it to be a wonderful classroom for Americans to see an alternative in a smart and thoughtful and pragmatic way to deal with social problems that we're dealing with here. 
And for yeah. years, I've taken groups. I would go at an off hour, like Ellen was talking about, in the morning. You can walk through the red light district and talk about this issue and talk about it from a, uh, a health point of view and a, and, a, and a morality point of view or, or a pragmatic uh, public affairs point of view. You're from Colorado Springs, right? That's, that's Colorado. You've yes. got legal recreational marijuana, so it's, it's, it's yes. not that big a deal. You can go into a coffee shop and I find the guys who run the coffee shops enjoy sharing their experience with American teachers. And and you could drop into one and for a few minutes just have a Q&A time yep. with your students. And that would I be, see. that would make it not a white, what do you call it, a, a white elephant, but something you're, you're grappling with honestly. And then your kids won't yes. be thinking this is the forbidden fruit. If you do that in that case, I would go for a small scale coffee shop and not one of the big oh, yeah. chains because there are even big chains like the Bulldog is a very big yeah, chain coffee shop. But that is like a, a little neighborhood. Place. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ellen, what, what other uh, ideas would you have for a school teacher to get the most out of their time? in the, Well, the um, there's a new attraction, which is um, uh, on the north side of Amsterdam, which is now the n- area that is being redeveloped. So you can just um, go to Central Station, to the back of Central Station, there's the body of water that is I, which used to be the open access to the sea for the trading ships. And you can cross that by ferry, which is free for pedestrians and cyclists. You can just cross it. So it's a nice local experience to do that. And then on the other side, you have the I Film Museum. But now next to it, you have the Amsterdam Tower. And that used to be the Shell headquarters. But if you go in there, you can go all the way to the top of the building and then you have a lovely view of the of the city with all interactive screens telling you where's what. And it's a beautiful view. And you've got a swing on top of the uh, ceiling. So there. correct me if I'm wrong here, Ellen, but you could rent bicycles in Amsterdam and take your bikes onto that free ferry that yes. goes across the river. Yes. And then you land at the new big uh, theater where you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you can go in there and see a, a movie or check out the art. Yep. And then nearby you have the mm-hmm. tower. Yep. And then from there you could bike and in 20 minutes you're in the Polderland. Exactly, yes. And that's, and that's in the countryside. Good... There you're going to be like wishing you had your wooden shoes. Yep, and that's a good way to, <laughs> to do biking with a group because if you're doing that in the city centre, no, you, you'll be right. stuck in traffic. <laughs> but, but, but five minutes behind the train station where you can yeah, rent your bikes, you, yeah. get, you get on that ferry. It's a commuter ferry and you feel so local because you're just crowding onto this little ferry with a bunch of locals yep. with their bicycle. And then literally in a few minutes you're, you're out in the countryside. That sounds like a perfect idea. We like doing the more local things than just the giant uh, touristy things. So, Two museums I would put on your list, and I'll let Ellen explain them, the Tropics Museum and the Dutch Resistance Museum. Yeah. Do you know that, what is it called, the Tropen Museum? Tropen Institut. Yeah, that's a fascinating place. Yes, yes. It's all about the um, colonial heritage, colonial, really, yeah. from, from the Dutch history. And it has all kinds of artifacts from all over the world. And it's it's uh, historic, and it makes for a very interesting visit because it puts colonialism into today's perspective and all the problems surrounding it. And with all the hype around Anne Frank, I think you get a better look at the Holocaust, really, or the, the whole Nazi experience in the Netherlands by going to the Dutch Resistance Museum. Yep, I agree with you there. Yeah, No crowds, designed for student groups. Yes, and it gives you... Uh, Anne Frank is, of course, famous because Anne Frank is such a, such a symbol, Anne Frank, mm-hmm. But the Resistance Museum paints the broader picture mm-hmm. and gives you intimate stories of people who actually received the letter to go on transport. And you see people preparing for that as if it was going to be a happy outing. You see mm. families, they have footage, video footage, and you see families sewing uh, socks 
because they need to pack them because they're going and on transport. And suffering through the tulip winter when there is no food and you have a whole yep. generation wow. of people who are shorter. So many powerful experiences. Eric, uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> taking a group of young American students over to the Netherlands. They're going to have a trip of a lifetime. Oh, you bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Amsterdam and the challenges Amsterdam has as its tourist industry is thriving. And we've been joined by Ellen Janzing. Ellen, thank you that's all my Dutch. <laughs> Sounds good. I hold from the dancing. I hold from the music. I hold from the road. What places have you heard about on Travel with Rick Steves that have spurred you to plan a trip? Let's check in next about your travel plans at 877-333-RICK. Feliz Año Nuevo. Feliz Año Nuevo a todos. And a voorspoedig nieuwjaar. For the sake of old Lang Syne, Happy New Year. <laughs> Have a Happy, Happy New Year. Year to you. All the best to you. Happy New Year, Rick Boy. <laughs> the start of a new year is a good time to start thinking about the places you'd like to visit in the month ahead. It's never too early to start planning, especially if you're taking the whole family. What kind of travel plans are you working on for your next trip? Tell us at 877-333-7425 and we can compare notes. Todd's on the line from New Brighton in Minnesota. Todd, thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, what are you thinking about for travel plans? Well, we're traveling uh, to Europe this summer. I'm an experienced traveler. I've traveled many times over to Europe, but never with my girl. I have twin girls that are 10 years old and take them for the first time. Wow, that's exciting. Very much, yeah. Very excited for it. So we're going in August, and we're going to be um, visiting Paris and then Cologne, Germany, and then go down to Italy, where we have an exchange student that stayed with us last year. The question is basically, uh, you know, what's some challenges that I might face, you know, being an experienced traveler by myself or with friends, now traveling with kids? Well, you got twins, 10 years old. Uh, you're lucky they've got uh, a playmate. I remember when we took our 10-year-old to Europe, it was actually worth bringing a friend along, so they had... Uh, they weren't just stuck with adults all the time. So that's an advantage. All over Europe, uh, tourist information offices are used to the question, what should we do with our kids? I think uh, it's really important when you're traveling with kids to honestly include the kids in on your itinerary planning sessions. If everything is designed for the uh, the parents or the adults' interests uh, in sightseeing, the kids are going to kind of go on strike and have a bad attitude. But if every day there's something the kids want to do that's genuinely what the kids want to do, not what the parents want their kids to do, I think the whole trip goes smoother. Uh, Europe has wonderful public swimming pools, for instance, and as you're traveling around, you know, just to forget the museums and forget the art galleries and go to a big swimming pool is actually a lot of fun. There's uh, special walks and uh, entertaining walks in the evening that are comedy walks and ghost walks, and these are lots of fun for kids to be on. Uh, when you go to museums all over Europe now, you've got the audio guides. Uh, you know, you'll pick up a little audio guide at the uh, beginning, and sometimes it's included in the admission price, and sometimes it's free. And a lot of times you'll actually have a kid's track, so you can have a kid's version of the tour of that museum, which of course makes it more entertaining for them. Do you have a specific question about a specific place, Todd? Well, Paris I know well. I've been there many times, but uh, I think that's kind of one of those things that I've been there for, you know, obviously friends, I have friends over there, but you know, is there places in Paris that would be kind of nice to take the kids? Well, 
you know, I like to get the kids some exercise, and uh, there's an elevated park uh, built along a former train line uh, that goes right through these, the old part of town. It's called the Promenade Planty. I just think that's unforgettable for the kids. And you can go up there, and it's a nice little hike, and you're looking into people's living quarters from about the fifth floor, you know, and it's just, that's a lot of fun. Uh, also in Paris, the, the Seine River now has a literal park on either bank, and uh, instead of traffic, you've got people lounging around, and you'll be there during school break. And during that time, it's called the Perry Plage. They move in sand, and they move in palm trees, and they move in trampolines and little rock climbing zones, and it's just a wonderland for kids. And, and that is a beautiful opportunity when you have kids in Paris. So there's a couple ideas. Um, also, uh, do a little uh, creative movie watching before your trip so the kids are tuned into different slices of Paris history. And uh, there's a lot of slices of Paris history that come to life when the kids can understand it a little bit in advance. And then you get there and you go, oh, wow, Louis Fourteenth, And you go out to his palace. And then his uh, queen just didn't like all the formality of palace life. So she would dress up like a little peasant girl. And she had her little fake peasant hamlet out in the, in the garden. And you can go out then out into the garden and the kids have this romantic idea of the poor little rich girl, you know, the queen tending her perfumed sheep in her manicured gardens out of the petite hameau. The palace can be a drag or it can be a, a, a wonderland for the imagination of, of your children with a little bit of uh, smart parenting before your trips. Hey, Todd, good luck with that and uh, congratulations on, on wonderful so parenting, taking you your kids to Europe. Okay, bye now. Paul's calling in from Stillwater in Minnesota. Paul, thanks for being on. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, similar to the previous caller, uh, our family will be taking a two-week trip to Europe in June. We have two kids also, but they're little older teenagers, 16 and 19, that will be traveling to Europe for the first time. So uh, we'll be flying into Rome and um, traveling north from there to spending some time in, in Italy and then up to Switzerland and then over to France. So question to you is this, this will be all of our first time in Italy and obviously in Rome. You know, there's plenty to do in Rome. I'm not concerned about that. But we have about three or four more days that we'd like to see a second area of Italy that you feel is worth seeing and, and uh, maybe a little bit more in the country versus the city. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend? And you've got a family of four? Correct. If you rented a car, just two hours north of Rome, you've got all the hill towns of Tuscany and Umbria. With a family of four in a car, that would be a wonderful adventure away from the city and a nice contrast to Rome. I think if you had a family of four visiting all the little towns without a car, it would be a sweaty, difficult challenge, and you'd be better off just going to another uh, great city. You know, if you just wanted to do cities, you'd have two days in Florence and two days in Milano on your way to Switzerland. Uh, If you wanted to get more of a mix... You could go to Milano, which is an amazing city, and then an hour north of Milano is Lake Como, and you can get there by train. And a family of four settling into Varena on Lake Como, V-A-R-E-N-N-A, is a wonderful little break from your vacation. Uh, if I need to coalesce in that part of Europe, Varena is the place I go. It's, it's honeymoon country for a lot of Italians. That's a beautiful, beautiful place to visit. Milan is a good chance to counter Rome. You know, they say for every church in Rome, there's a bank in Milan. And uh, Milan is more of a no-nonsense, uh, thriving city, whereas Rome is a little more ancient, a little more chaotic, and a little more, a lot of checklist of famous sites to see. 
I think your kids might enjoy the shopping in Milan because it's a fashion center. And when my son was uh, uh, 16 and our daughter was 14, we took them to Milan, and they just really enjoyed checking out the whole fashion scene there. Okay, appreciate that. What would be your opinion about um, going more on the coast to, I think it's pronounced Cinque Terre? Uh, I was thinking about the Cinque Terre. Yeah, that is my favorite stretch of Mediterranean coastline anywhere. You've got about a five-hour train ride north of Rome, and you get to the Cinque Terre. You would not want to have a car for that, Paul, just because uh, you can't use your car really in the Cinque Terre. So you take the train into these little towns, and that's a wonderland. You could spend uh, four nights and three days on the Cinque Terre, and your kids would uh, be very, very happy. Yeah, and they're old enough, and they're they're more, um, I would say, they're more into being active versus shopping. Okay, well, active is Cinque Terre then, and you can hike from town to town. They can go swimming. You know, you could uh, rent little boats and explore. Uh, there's so much to, to do and, and see and eat on the Cinque Terre. Each evening, it's just, a, it's just a magical place. You're surrounded by vineyards. You know, you've got these twinkling Mediterranean vistas. Each town's got its, you know, little tiny castle, and uh, the train comes ripping by through the tunnels, and it blinks open at each port. It's quite a wonderland, and one thing I like about the Cinque Terre, my favorite slices of Italy are the Italy that are traffic-free. I call it fiat-free Italy, and the Cinque Terre is fiat-free. It's, it's just really nice, especially after coming from Rome. So you got a good option there, and you could do that. Again, you're heading up to Switzerland, so you could take the train to uh, the Cinque Terre, and then from there you could take the train up into the Swiss Alps. And then you go from palm trees to snowballs in one day. You head on up to Switzerland, mm. and you settle oh. down in the best part of the Swiss Alps for some hiking there. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, I, and that's, that's an area I think we were looking into, is the, the Cinque Terre. And, yeah. All right. Okay, thanks for your Thank call. You very much. Okay, bye now. Our listeners are letting us in on their travel plans for the year ahead right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. By the way, do you know how big a deal New Year's Eve is in Edinburgh? It's the home of Hogmanay and Auld Lang Syne. Friends from Scotland tell us about the fun traditions they observe for the holiday in an extra to this week's show. You can listen to that by going to our show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. And Cindy's calling in from Charlotte, North Carolina. Cindy, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. We're moving up the age range in uh, kids because I'm traveling with my son and daughter-in-law who are in their mid-20s. And this is our first trip together to Europe. And we're going to be going to Barcelona, Paris, Milan, and Rome. So I am just wondering about some fun things that would appeal to mid-20-year-olds in any of those cities. Wow. Barcelona, Paris, Rome, and Milan. Those are four of the most exciting towns for, well, for anybody. But if if you're thinking of a couple of travelers in their 20s, there is lots to see and do there. Each place has an amazing night scene, and you'll want to have them do their own research about what they want to do in the evening because there's all sorts of fun to be had in the trendy, you know, night areas in each of those places. Also, okay. in each case, you've got a family of... what? How big is your group that's traveling? Three. Three of you. You've got enough mm-hmm. people, really, to justify hiring a private guide. And I would picnic okay. for dinner if you need to in order to afford this, but if you can have a private guide for half a day just to get you started in each one of these towns, I'd highly recommend that. And you can find uh, you know, the emails of, of guides uh, on the Internet or on TripAdvisor or in my guidebooks or whatever. But in Barcelona... 
in Paris, in Rome, in Milan. Also, if you'd rather, you can tap into local guided walks. Rome and Paris in particular, yeah, Barcelona also, have uh, wonderful companies that are dedicated to sharing the cost of the guide with small groups and then walking around with a certain theme. So you'd want your son and your daughter-in-law to know that, okay, we've got a certain amount of time in each of these great cities. Do a little studying in advance. I don't know what they're interested in, but if it's art or culture or fashion or cars or shopping or history, you know, you've got lots of that in each of these places. Uh, If I look through these towns in, in Barcelona, you've got the Gaudí sites, which are very, very popular. This is that Art Nouveau in Catalonia. I would remind you nowadays there's so many people going to the famous sites that if it's possible to get reservations in advance, you should do that online. So you could delegate that chore. Yeah, figure out what you want to do. But when you go to Barcelona, the Gaudi sites should all be reserved online, especially the Sagrada Familia Church. When you go to Paris, you can reserve the Louvre, you can reserve the Orsay, uh, you can buy a Paris Museum Pass, actually, and that lets you get into these sites without waiting in line if you get the Paris Museum Pass, and that includes the Great Palace out at Versailles. Uh, when it comes to Rome, you've got a chance to book in advance the Sistine Chapel and the Colosseum and the Forum, and by booking in advance, also the most beautiful interior of any building in Europe, as far as I'm concerned, is the Galerie Borghese. It's in the Borghese Gardens, and it is filled with the finest statues by Bernini, who is the father of the Baroque movement. That's a a sumptuous palace that only lets in uh, a few hundred people at a time at uh, several different uh, entry times during the day. So you get a couple hours there, but you got to have a reservation if you're going to get into that. And the same thing would be true in Milan. When you go to Milan, you're probably going to want to see The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. If you don't have a reservation in advance, you will not get through the door. I can promise you that. Right. Okay, great. Is there any worry about being out late at night and, you know, sort of doing the club scene, or are they safe? (laughs) Um, You know, I think you live in, in North Carolina in Charlotte. I would think they're, if they're comfortable running around uh, after dark in Charlotte, they would be comfortable running around in any of these uh, towns. You know, my kids have loved being in each of these cities. I can just think of the stories they've told, of the fun they've had after my bedtime in each of these places. Right. And uh, I've never worried about them if they use common sense in places like this. Europe is out and about after dark, and uh, I think the worst thing that's going to can happen is you are reckless and you, you get run over by a bike or a car or that you get pickpocketed by some petty thief. But there's not, right. any, there's not any violent crime. If your kids are not gullible and, and uh, reckless, they should be, I think, uh, wonderfully safe in these towns. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I think one thing they might want to do is have a picnic on the banks of the Seine as the sun is going down. It's just a gorgeous time to be there, and all the young people are out and about. It's just like high cuisine in Paris on a, on a picnic blanket, and it gives you an excuse to go shopping, and that's a, a memory you'll never forget. Another memory I would recommend with the kids would be to go to a food tour in Rome. Of, mm. There's a district called Testaccio. And Testaccio is the old um, port. It was sort of the entry point from all of the produce and, and so on in Rome. And to this day, it's where the food is organized for Rome. And when you take a walking food tour of Testaccio, you visit eight or ten different hole-in-the-wall artisan food shops, and it's a mobile mm-hmm. dinner. And that's just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So that's something you might want to check out as well. That'll be great. My son is a chef, and so this uh, trip is also all about food. Oh. He will, he will love that. <laughs> well, you've got to do that in Rome for sure. Okay, Cindy, That's thanks a lot. Great. Have fun. Thank you. And Philip's on the line from Fort Madison in Iowa. Hi, Philip. Hi, Rick. 
when our grandchildren get to a certain age, which seems to be about 11, we take them on a trip to Europe by themselves. And coming up, we're taking my grandson, Brenton, who is a great World War II buff. And our first stop is going to be in Amsterdam. And then we're going to travel by train down to the Normandy coast and spend about five days there exploring the battlefields and then end up in London and flying home from there. Wow. Um, You're a cool grandpa. Well, I try to be the best one, you know. It's a competition. (laughs) That is so good. So specifically, I guess I was kind of curious to know what your top things to do with children in Amsterdam would be. Top things to do with children in Amsterdam. How Your grandson is 11 years old? He's 11, but he's a real history buff. So we already have plans to do the Anne Frank Museum, and we're already hitting all the museums. Yeah. Is there something else that's kind of a a don't miss? Yeah, I'll tell you, when you're in Amsterdam, to complement the Anne Frank House, the Dutch Resistance Museum, it's much more of a museum than the Anne Frank House. It's five times the exhibits as Anne Frank. It doesn't have the, the romance of being based on this diary and so on. But don't miss the Dutch Resistance Museum. And there's no crowds there. And it's just an amazing story of what it was like to be in the Netherlands under Nazi rule and uh, the heroics and the courage of people that fought for their independence. So that's something that's a pretty heavy, heavy history. But if he's seen Anne Frank, I think it would give it a, a better context. And I think that would be a very good thing to do. Also, there's a tropics museum in Amsterdam, which is really interesting because it gives you a trip to all of the tropical former colonies of the Dutch. They really had their fingers in a lot of different tropical corners, and this tropics museum is really one of the highly thought of museums in Europe, and that would be something in Amsterdam. And you've got a maritime museum. You've got the Henry Hudson and the Dutch East India Company and all of that. Uh, they've got a museum there, which is the maritime history of the Netherlands. And for an 11-year-old history uh, buff, that would be a fascinating experience as well. And then when you get to Normandy, you really have to tap into some of these expate British World War II buffs. And they just live and breathe the D-Day landings. There's a number of them, and any guidebook lists them. And uh, you would want to hire one of these. They're minibus tours. You can hire them privately, or you can just join an all-day minibus tour, and they'll pick you up. And it is the best education for the D-Day landings and all of that uh, World War II history there. My favorite museum in that area is in Caen, C-A-E-N. I think it's called the Memorial, the Caen World War II Memorial, rather than a museum. But it really functions as a museum and a memorial to the war and to peace. For me, it's a a very nice way to complement all you will see there in Normandy. And because your grandson is a World War II buff, in London, you've got to see the Imperial War Museum. It's very easy to get to from downtown London, and it uh, humanizes what war is all about. It doesn't glorify it. It's not just a bunch of uh, tanks and cannons and and, uh, weaponry. It talks about the humanity of war and and how it uh, impacted people back home. And it's just an amazing museum. And that would be the Imperial War Museum in London. Sounds great. Yeah, so lots to see and do, and it's great that you're going with your grandson, and it's great that your grandson has an interest in this history because that gives you a little purpose to your trip and a reason to shape your itinerary one way or another. Oh, it sounds great. I'm sure he will enjoy that. All right, Philip, thanks so much, and and, uh, best wishes in your beautiful grandparenting. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amara Kitnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Rick's friends from Edinburgh remind us of the many fun traditions they observe in Scotland for welcoming in the new year. You can listen in an extra to this week's show on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.